Welcome to the Time for Teaching podcast. This podcast explores the joys and challenges of teaching in higher education. I'm Kelly Fox. And I'm Kim Reed. And today we're here to talk about the love of learning, but also something that's a little more difficult for many of us as educators to wrap our heads around. And that's those who don't love learning and how we can accept this and still engage meaningfully with students who don't love learning or those who, like my husband, say they are chasing the pass. Yeah. You know, this is an important topic and we've talked quite a bit about this on the show about, you know, the love of learning, about promoting lifelong learning strategies and about some of the ways we can help our students and ourselves to find the joy in teaching and learning experiences. But what we haven't really talked about is those who just don't love learning. Yep, and it's an important discussion for us to have. I have a confession to make. I'm a lover of learning. Surprise, surprise. Big time lover of learning. (laughs) (laughs) But I live in a house full of wonderfully intelligent, interesting, kind, loving, and thoughtful boys who do not love and some days don't even like learning. My two older (laughs) kids are super vocal about this and they're not afraid to say that their favorite parts of school are gym, library, and recess. And they come by it honestly as my husband, who is a very intelligent, and successful fellow also didn't love school. I can see. I can see why this would be a sore spot and and know that this is a challenge for like for teachers, for academics, as we are often in this role because we love it and we just assume that everyone loves it. Mm-hmm. Just because we do. So when students choose, you know, to get a 60% on a test or students choose to like cheat, it kind of feels like it's a personal attack on us. And it also just seems really confusing. I've often heard faculty say things like, if this student would put just as much time into doing the work as they do goofing off, it would have been done by now. Actually, I think <laughs> maybe my mother said that to me. I'm not sure. But anyways, <laughs> so... <laughs> So I guess the question is then, you know, how do we as educators recognize that those who don't love learning, but know it's a means to an end, you know, I need to pass so I can graduate, so I can start working and start making money. How do we connect with those students and help them connect with the content if the connection with learning is generally not there? Okay, so let me ask too. Is this important? Like, why do we care or do we even need to have this conversation? Is it is it our responsibility? Yeah, these are really good questions, Kel. And as usual, I'm not sure that I have a good answer for either of them, but we do have some (laughs) thoughts and have come across some information ideas that may be helpful. So first of all, as you mentioned during our prep, there are a lot of students who have good reasons for not feeling connected to the learning process. If they're like my kids, it may be as simple as they enjoy informal learning. So the times when they're outside looking at nature and learning about how things grow or how things interact uh, more than the times when they're at a desk in a classroom. So the times when they know they're learning are the times when they're not super keen on it, but the times when they're kind of learning by accident or learning without realizing that they're learning, those are the times that they really enjoy it. And you know what? We have those students at Georgian Yeah, that's a great point. We just listened to a podcast. You actually sent me a podcast, which was wonderful. A great episode of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, which we love. And guest Shauna Roderberg says that, quote, 
education is terrifying if you've never connected with it before, or if you've never had Mm. someone who believes in you and wants you to succeed, which I think is such a valid point. There are so many different reasons why our students may not feel connected to education. And I don't necessarily know if we need to dig that deep. I think there's just lots of ways that we can help them find um, a connection that's comfortable for them. So perhaps students have never thought of themselves as an academic. Perhaps they have other hobbies and interests that they're more committed to and involved in. My siblings, who are both wonderful people, graduated from D1 schools in the States with degrees in business and sports administration. The learning there was no joke. At D1 schools, they have very strict uh, regulations around academics. They're both incredibly intelligent and capable people, but they were both there on hockey scholarships and neither of them would ever consider themselves academics or profess a love for learning. Hockey was always their priority, but they both achieved wonderful academic achievements while they were there, but they just weren't a priority for them. For my kids, they want to be outside. They want to play Lego. They want to be engaging with friends and being in a less structured environment. And I totally get that. I think... The bottom line is, and this is so important, that folks not loving learning doesn't mean they're not capable of learning. It also doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that they're lazy. It doesn't mean that they have misaligned priorities. We're complex and unique, and we have different likes, interests, and ways of showing up in a classroom and in our lives. This is what makes life and teaching so interesting. So not loving learning does not mean that you are not an effective learner, or I guess a love for learning is not a prerequisite for success in it. Mm. So If our goal isn't to force our students into loving education and learning, what is our goal? Is it to make them feel comfortable in the learning environment so they're able to learn? So the the podcast that you were talking about in teaching in higher ed, there was a story that really resonated with me. And Shauna, the person who they were interviewing on the podcast, um, she teaches in the funeral services program at a community college. And she talks about a student who was very excited to start the program, um, was, you know, really into all of the science of it. And this was like her lifelong dream. But when it came time for the lab, she had a visceral response to the lab and was terrified to enter. Mm-hmm. And then over the semester, Shauna worked with that student to help make her feel comfortable by starting to hold her arm and then, you know, helping her to go into the doorway and then so on and so forth. So and so how do we still engage students and not get to a point where we stop caring or when everyone involved is left feeling frustrated? Mm-hmm. Maybe instead of asking our students to love learning, we ask them to consider the value of learning in their lives within and beyond our classes. It's a thought. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do we get them to see that what they're they're doing in the class is part of them being successful in the workplace and life beyond it? So how do we prevent that student from just turning and running, right? If I think about walking into the cadaver lab, you know, like they're terrified and turning around and running, walking into a post-secondary institution and going, oh my gosh, I don't belong here, turning around and running. Mm-hmm. I think it comes down to really motivating students and helping them to draw connections between maybe themselves and the content or maybe themselves and their peers or maybe themselves and the world around them. I think what it doesn't mean is that we have to force everyone to feel the same way that we do. Yeah, I would love my kids to love learning because it's such an important part of my life, but maybe the learning that they love happens in different ways than the learning that I love. So I have to embrace the fact that my kids love recess and gym and resist the urge to take it personally when they push back on evening reading time. It doesn't mean I'm not going to encourage them to do it. It just means that I don't need to feel frustrated or like I've failed if they don't love reading like I do. So we've done a little research and can come, have come up with a few ideas we think are worth sharing. Would you like to kick us off, Kelly? 
I would love to. Okay, so one of my favorite authors, we talk about him a lot, James Lang, shares in his book, Small Teaching, he shares about making connections for students to the learning. So we as experts, we are able to make connections to content. We can talk about it till the cows come home. It rolls off our tongue. And we can talk to our colleagues who are also in the same area. And we make sense to each other. um, And we understand what we're all saying. But it is also important that we consider the novice and how we make connections for them. So how many times have you heard a student say, why do we need to know this? And so they may have previous knowledge or maybe none at all, but are they not able to understand things because they lack connections? So essentially, according to Lang, the knowledge in our minds consists of neural networks. So if we want to grow our knowledge, the neural networks need to physically change. So this means helping students to make connections of new stuff by connecting it to stuff they already know. Of course, a key component of this is the connections have to be meaningful to them. So, you know, you and I talking, Kim, it's like we can't just say, well, yes, it needs to be meaningful and we need to make connections. And then it happens. We have to we can't just say it. We have to think about strategies to support it. So a couple that uh, Lang has, for example, would be develop a consistent and logical structure for our course to reduce cognitive load. So. You know what, Kim, I learned this best from you. For example, each week you have to have weekly goals, the to-do list, the learning activities, and the summary. Um, So this creates a weekly rhythm for students. Another strategy Lang offers is using concept maps, and I love this one. It really helps students to visualize the organization of key concepts, but also to help make connections. There are some real great digital tools like Miro, that helps students to create these maps without them becoming you know, too large and un- unmanageable, but also so that they can go back and edit them if they need to. Okay, and the last one I'll mention is asking students to provide examples or prompting them to explain. So, you know, for example, asking a student, can you give me an example or what is similar or different? Those could be some prompting questions. Yeah, I love all of these. I think one of the things that I took away from um, all the research and reading that I did when we were preparing to welcome our kids to our family was the idea of um, a lot of people thrive on structure. So even people that are really spontaneous and like flexibility still um, need some sort of structure around their day and their life. So um, I actually just had a friend text me today and say, hey, how are you doing? Thinking about you guys, you know, what's up? And I said, I feel like we're just starting to kind of find our rhythm with the school year. So the idea of like waking up at the right time, getting the kids a good breakfast, making lunches, getting out the door at the regular time, it takes us like, I would say three to four weeks to kind of find our rhythm with something. And I feel so much more kind of at peace and comfortable and in control when we do have, you know, expectations about the kids know after you finish your breakfast, you go make your bed, you brush your teeth, you comb your hair, and then you come out and you have a little bit of time to play before we head out. So there's something very comfortable about structure that still allows for flexibility and creativity, but that provides us some sort of a foundation for work. So I love these ideas, the making connections to help make sense of the content. And this also brings, it's a nice segue into one of the strategies that we read about, which is caring for students and their success and well-being in our classes. So putting structure into our classes is kind of a gift that we can give to our students because it, again, allows them to relieve some of that cognitive load and know what the expectations are as they enter in each week. (laughs) 
So we often hear faculty say, I would love to chat with my students more or take more time to get to know them, but I just have so much content to cover. It's difficult to make time Mm -hmm. for this other stuff. So this brings us back to our discussion of bedside manner or desk side manner from a previous episode, one that inspired lots of chats with colleagues and lots of brainstorming to kind of get to that term desk side manner, which we loosely defined as the way we are and the things we do in our classes to help our students feel seen, heard, appreciated and cared for. So there's tons of studies out there that suggest students perform best in classes where they feel like they're part of a community, where they feel important and where they feel like someone cares about them. So taking that time to connect with learners socially and help them connect with one another, so facilitating connection, can really help us connect learners with the material and with the learning as well. And this is especially important, I think, for those who don't feel particularly connected to learning in a more general sense, or for those who have a tough time feeling engaged and interested during class time, like my sweet boys. So when we show understanding, when we're kind, when we're interested, and when we recognize that our students have big and important lives outside of our classrooms, Whether they love learning or not, they still feel seen, heard, understood, appreciated. And I think that's so important for success. You know what? I completely agree. And then I also think about those students who are thinking they don't belong here or they're terrified or, you know, all the other emotions that might be present in our classrooms. And so giving them the opportunity or providing the space where they actually feel like they're seen, heard um, and that they belong is really important. We probably always knew this, but remote and online teaching has really shone a bright light on the importance of designing opportunities for students to want to be involved. So I would say this probably this past 18 months or so has really forced us to innovate rapidly, um, plan for the unexpected, and then learn to teach regardless of being face-to-face, online, synchronous, or asynchronous. I think a really important lesson for me was the three-hour in-class lecture that it doesn't translate well into a three-hour online lecture. In the beginning of the pandemic, um, you know, sitting through a three-hour anything was painful, if not impossible for me. And in our classrooms, we saw students not participating, turning cameras off, or not even showing up at all. I learned very quickly to offer short lecture times, like, you know, 10 minutes or less. And there's lots of research around that as well. And then to mix that up with a group activity, you know, whether it was a breakout room or to pepper in some polling or some individual reflection or worksheets. I also encouraged interaction like uh, writing in the chat or using the reaction buttons or, you know, moving over to like that Uh, the program that I was mentioning, Miro, to help brainstorm activities. Um, I also use collaborative work docs a lot and was recently introduced to Jamboards. Also encouraging experiential learning, which is, you know, probably what your boys quite like too, but Mm. it's maybe a whole whole other episode that we'll talk about at some point, but encouraging students to practice or try on their own or to make mistakes, to learn and try again, you know, you know, get out into the to wherever the world and touch and do and whatever, but to make space even in our remote and online teaching for students to be out in the field or in the workplace and helping students to make connections to the content from what they see and do. And then talking to their peers, they're all excellent learning strategies. I've seen some really creative ways teachers are, are teachers have asked students to document their experiences using their smartphone videos and then bringing them back into the remote classroom or to the synchronous classroom to share with other students, you know, whether you're using breakout rooms or what have you. So I, I just can't imagine the engagement. 
Yeah, it really is incredible to hear about all the amazing things that folks are doing out there and just the sheer creativity and the commitment to students that people are demonstrating by coming up with these ideas and executing them and then sharing them with others. It really is amazing. So, so many folks have found amazing ways to get creative and meet students where they're at. Uh, I loved our chat with Erica and where she shared with us the whole idea of asking students to choose something that's comfortable for them now, today, and recognizing and appreciating that comfort may change week to week or day to day. So the next one that I remember learning about when we became puppy parents and also continue to read a lot about in parenting books and articles as well. I think I've mentioned this on the show before. This is the power of positive reinforcement and rewarding desired behavior. Um, I was actually just listening to a podcast this week, Kelly, that you and I were talking about earlier. I believe his name is Harold Kopowitz. He was on Armchair Expert, which is one of my favorite podcasts. And uh, he mm-hmm. said, if anyone, he, he shared so many wonderful things about um, healthy kind of healthy children and mental health and uh, intervention and a number of different things, some really interesting studies that he brought up. And one of the things that he said, he said, if you take one thing away from this podcast, I want you to um, kind of take away the concept or idea that one of the greatest gifts that you can give yourself as a parent and your children is to catch them doing something good. So he was talking about how sometimes we need to ignore the little things. So the example that he gave was, you know, if you're teaching your children proper table manners for when they're out at a restaurant and they forget to place their napkin in their lap. No one's going to be hurt by that. It's something that you can bring up to them again later. But if they're very polite to the waiter or waitress who comes over to the table, then you praise them on that. So he basically says, take a two week period and try to catch your kids doing something good as often as you can. So that really speaks to, again, the power of positive reinforcement. There's a whole collection of other data out there supporting this as well. And I've seen the benefits of it in my own life, whether it's interacting with my kids or our canine companions sweetest soul in the world, uh, or even in myself, (laughs) praise feels good. So it's something that we can and should use in our classes as well. I think about my middle son, who's such a deep thinking, big feeling, straight shooting little cutie, someone who very openly admits that school's not his thing. However, the first week of school this year, he came home beaming, talking about recess, about new friends, and most importantly, about a sticker that his teacher had given him on the first day for doing so well. And more recently, a desk pet, which is like a little tiny uh, figurine that's about probably the size of your pinky finger who sits on his desk. I think it's such an incredible concept. So these are given out as a positive reward for children doing great things. Uh, So his was earned by completing a worksheet titled I Love Myself, which is just so stinking adorable on its own anyway. Um, He was excited. He was so excited. In fact, that he told us at the dinner table, he was going to work really hard again tomorrow so that his teacher would notice uh, and maybe he could earn another sticker or another desk pet. So shout out to his teacher. She's a lovely, kind and incredibly hardworking soul. And we are so thrilled and so appreciative of all the things that she does and that so many elementary teachers do for our little ones. I should note that we have a drawer full of arguably nicer, bigger, flashier stickers in our craft desk at home. And he's got lots of little figures that he loves to play with who are from TV shows or books that he likes. But it's not the sticker itself that matters. What matters way more is what the sticker and the little desk pet symbolizes for him. Being praised Mm -hmm. for what we're doing feels good. It makes us feel proud. And for those like my son who would rather be spending his days swimming or hiking or building Lego, sometimes positive and and 
positive reinforcement and praise can be enough to get him even just a little excited about school. So Mm -hmm. I guess then the question is, what does that look like in our classes here at Georgian? And I can't imagine that our students here would be super excited about desk pets or stickers. (laughs) (laughs) However, there's lots of other little things that we can do. So things that we can do that are zero cost and only take a little bit of effort are things like stopping by a student's desk to compliment them on a great contribution to a class discussion. Uh, It could be adding a few more positive comments in the feedback section on an assignment. It could be sending an email of thanks to a class for really showing up, whatever that looks like and for being a great audience for their peers during presentations or for participating really well during an in-class activity in a virtual classroom. These little motivators can go such a long way. Uh, It should also be noted that a few of the resources we consulted suggested taking positive reinforcement to the next level, which I absolutely love. And I think this is such an important consideration as well by emphasizing effort as well as accomplishment and also praising mistakes. So as in many cases, it's not the final product that's the only thing that's important, but also the amount of effort that you put into reaching a goal. So praising for effort allows space for mistakes and means that you're building in opportunities for failure, which can result in real authentic learning from mistakes and for critical thinking and revision, which are all important parts of learning and growth for all of us. Kim, I love that. I am not always the best at providing the positive necessarily. It's not that I don't, but I think making a conscious effort. um, And what really resonates is what you just said about, you know, thank you for the contribution. You know, like and praising that is really like powerful for the student to hear it and hopefully motivating as well. You know, Mm -hmm. and as teachers, we should really never underestimate the power of even the smallest positive reinforcement that we can provide. What if one of our students doesn't love to learn because they just don't see themselves reflected in our class? Mm -hmm. So when we think about creating community engagement, we should reflect the diversity of our students. And when we're designing our active learning strategies, we should also recognize our choices of readings, you know, examples we provide, analogies, videos, and other content that may reinforce any stereotypes. Mm-hmm. And then also when we invite students to bring pieces of themselves into the classroom to share, we contribute also to their self-concept um, and who they are within the class, within school, within education. But in turn, they can also contribute to the students. It can also contribute to the students feeling like they belong. Um, I am absolutely a work in progress in all of this area. It's easy for me to read about this stuff and I have this understanding of it, but really, um, and I focus some professional development on it as well, but really, I, I really need to focus also on the practice of it and, and embedding that, you know, consistently into my practice as well. It really does have an impact on our classes. Yeah, absolutely. It's so important, Kel. And I'm also trying to learn more about this as well uh, and completely agree that cultural relevance needs to continue to be a part of this discussion and a part of many other discussions at the college as well. Okay, so the last thing we wanted to mention and that we came across in our reading and research is the idea that students and all of us really typically feel most connected to things we can see and understand the purpose of. So we touched on this a little bit earlier as well. In my comm classes, I used to call it big picture thinking. So finding a resource and being able to properly cite it using APA citation and references definitely isn't something that most of our students will do (laughs) (laughs) again once they graduate. But whether it's personally or professionally, being able to support an opinion or hypothesis 
hypothesis with evidence and being able to reference that evidence or data in some way is an incredibly valuable skill. Asking students to consider the value of their learning and skill development beyond the realm of our classrooms invites them to use their critical thinking skills as well and see both the forest and the trees, so to speak. So I guess the most important thing to remember is that we will have students entering our classrooms who share our love of learning, but we will also have lots of students entering our classrooms who are passionate about and love lots of other things. So it's our job to understand, to appreciate, and to embrace that, and to try our best to make students' learning experiences as enjoyable, fruitful, and productive as possible. I completely agree. And oh my gosh, we have covered so much ground here today. Mm -hmm. I just love chatting with you. I really get so (laughs) energized by it. I mean, I remember in the before times, we could sit and have a coffee and chat about all things teaching and learning. I learned so much from you. And and from colleagues as well. But I think we are way over time today, my dear. (laughs) So we'll have to maybe make some time to chat again. (laughs) But thanks so much for today. It was uh, it's a good conversation. And I think it's a it's not one that's going to end. I think it's an ongoing conversation that will keep it going. So uh, until then, I guess. uh, Bye for now. Yes, thank you so much. This chat and all of the chats that we have with our colleagues fill my cup and act as a great reminder of how lucky we are to do what we do. So until next time, my friend, bye for now. Bye.